The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, December 14th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. One last message put forward by the Zodiac Killer has been solved. The serial killer, known as Zodiac, who gained infamy in California in the late 60s, would send codes or ciphers through the media. Some were cracked pretty easily, so he made them harder. Wanted 340 characters and was dubbed the Z340 Cipher. Here's computer programmer and Zodiac Cipher expert David Aranchik talking about this on the Zodiac A to Z podcast. We're coming up on 50 years of that thing not being solved, and it continues to elude the top minds in cryptography. It continues to be a, a big target for cryptographers and puzzle enthusiasts. It's like the Holy Grail in a lot of ways. Well, since the Holy Grail is a cup used by Jesus, not exactly like that. But then, as of December 3rd, the cipher was cracked. It was confirmed by the FBI. It was publicized a few days ago. And the same David Aranchik was part of a three-man, three-continent code-cracking team. He put out a video on his Let's Crack Zodiac YouTube series. Here he describes the eureka moment. So here goes. I clicked on Solve with Cribs, and boom, suddenly got a really clean message. And the phrase, that wasn't me on the TV show, pops out. At this point, I jumped out of my chair and yelled, holy shit. Cribs and transitions and a learning machine and shifting a cryptogram diagonally. But they got it. They cracked it. So what does it say? Here now, we'll play a portion. When Democrats are filing the lawsuits, everything's hunky-dory that that, that they can challenge it. But in this instance, because it's President Trump and his legal team that's challenging it, the media is treating it like it is the most unimaginable thing we've ever seen. Sorry, sorry, that's not the Zodiac cipher. Don't know how that got in there. It says, I'll have to read it. I hope you're having a lot of fun and trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I'm not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise, spelled wrong. All the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where I don't even want to finish. Blah, 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 Zodiac, Zodiac, new life in paradise. You know what? It's just nonsense. It's nonsense from a loony bird. Glad we waited for that. Also, one reason why the code was so hard to crack, according to experts, is that it was what is technically called a bad cipher, meaning it had pretty inconsistent rules and it never really worked how ciphers are supposed to work, that one conspirator communicates to another and only they can figure it out. Too hard to solve. The Zodiac community has long maintained, or at least You get the sense by delving into the Zodiac community, which I did recently, that the impenetrability of the cipher says something about the man's superior intellect, but on the contrary, it seems to say something about his haphazardness. What's interesting is that a couple years ago, the History Channel had a special on the Zodiac Killer, a series, and it ended with them saying, we've done it, we've deciphered, that's where you get the word, this very cipher, Z340. So keeping in mind what you just heard of the FBI certified translation, here now is the History Channel's expert, what he found. He found the cipher said, I kill both night and day. I live by the gun barrel aim and like fishing for goldfish over pigs. I miss Goldilocks. Now, 
you know, I read the whole thing. There are like three or four shared letters out of the 340 characters. It's worse than chance. None of the phrases were the same as in the real one and the History Channel's one. I will also read you line nine from that cipher. You ready? Richard M. Nixon. That's the line. And what about, what about this fantastic, disastrous whiff? It appeared on the History Channel. How did the cipher or the Zodiac cipher community treat it? Well, it is good to know they mocked it, and they mocked it roundly. They said, what? You're not going by any rules. You're deciding that some symbols need to be ignored. I will now quote mysterycyphers.com. The motif of this anti-pattern is the codebreaker dreaming themselves into an intense imaginary journey into the world of the codemaker and bringing back as their prize a sample of their vision. All they have is the enduring conviction that they have solved it, a conviction that gets strengthened the brainier they are. That strikes me as insightful, actually. It is why a lot of times believers and even originators of deranged theories are of above-average intelligence. To use the Zodiac deciphering as an analogy to our times, belief in, say, Q theory and other amateur hunts for solutions, maybe even things that don't need solutions, you do see why wildly implausible solutions will abound. People get deep into this and they come up with their solutions. But solutions that don't hold up against scrutiny will at least be laughed away by intelligent people, even within the most obsessive communities, which is a good thing. The question is, will the community defer to the wisdom of the authorities? Will the wisdom of the authorities within the community have the ability to discern the plausible from the fantastic? When it comes to Zodiac cipher people, yeah. When it comes to Q, no. Last point on the Zodiac, he's annoyingly overrated. I don't find him that clever. He didn't really evade capture in ways that make you say, what a genius. He was just working against investigative tactics that were barely born. Yeah, he had some shtick. He did a bit of costuming. He had a little bit of interest in branding. So to him, I say, may you rot either in hell or the U.S. Senate. And now, remembrances of things Trump. And it's not just Trump that we remember, it's Trump's cabinet officials. Remember Trump's original choice for labor secretary, Andrew Puzder? Now, considering some of the charges leveled against Biden cabinet officials, that they're friends with each other, team of buddies, right? Sick burn. Or that the defense nominee might need a waiver because he was quite shamefully a four-star general four years ago. That is that guy's flaw. Listen to the reporting on Andrew Puzder at the time the former CEO of Hardee's withdrew from consideration. Andrew Puzder also has a checkered past as the CEO of the company that owns Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Decades ago, Puzder's ex-wife levied charges of domestic abuse against him, which she later dropped. She also appeared in disguise on Oprah Winfrey's TV show to talk about domestic violence. His confirmation hearing had been delayed five times, and he recently uh, revealed that he hired a housekeeper who was undocumented. Puzzler's company is facing numerous labor lawsuits. He's also been a critic of Obamacare. He's criticized the $15 minimum wage. Here's a quote about Hardy's marketing by Puzzler. I like beautiful women eating burgers and bikinis. I think it's very American. I used to hear brands take on the personality of the CEO, and I rarely thought that was true. But I think this one in this case, it kind of did take on my personality. During the past four years, Puzder has authored a book, The Capitalist Comeback, The Trump Boom, and the Left's Plot to Stop It. 
Joe Biden, on the other hand, has not announced a pick for labor secretary, but Senator Tom Cotton has criticized his picks in general by saying, quote, now he's surrounding himself with panda huggers who only reinforce his instincts to go soft on China. You know what? Put that panda in a bikini, have it drool bamboo over itself, and now we're talking leadership. This has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, I spiel about the judges who saved us from ourselves, not ourselves, Trump. But first, Matt Iglesias is what they used to call a public intellectual. Now they call such a figure a guy on Substack. But since nearly everyone is a guy on Substack, what sets Iglesias apart is his mastery of the issues, his clear writing, and his willingness, I'm going to say eagerness, to stray from ideological silos. Oh, also, his aversion to adopting an enticing name for his newsletter. It's called Slow Boring. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to Iglesias about a really insightful column he wrote before the election when he was writing for Vox about Democrats and the Latino vote and the arguments that were uncomfortable to make in the progressive sphere that, in retrospect, should have been made more. That and more with Matt Iglesias up next. We're joined once more by Matt Iglesias, who has embarked upon his own newsletter project. It is called Slow Boring. I think we maybe need to rebrand that. I don't know if it's slow. It happens once a day, so it's regular, and it's not boring. I, you ready for a word? Vital. I find the newsletter vital and a little surprising. Since I've been reading Matt Iglesias for a long time, I've always liked his work. I don't know what it is. Something about being in the newsletter where his ideas are really popping, and this is not my criteria for determining if something is interesting or successful, but I find myself with this newsletter saying more often than I do with almost anything I read this side of uh, Zenep Tefeki. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. So I had to have Matt back on again. Hello, Matt. Thanks for coming on again. Oh, thank you. That was uh, that was really kind. So I'm I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> right. So that's the buttering up before I lay into you. How dare you support a student loan scheme? No, I'm I'm kidding. But let me ask you this: Do you feel? I don't know if the word is liberated. Is there anything different? You, you wrote long form for Vox. Maybe there was a different editorial structure. But do you feel that there's anything different uh, about the quality of thoughts that you can express in the newsletter versus what you were doing Vox days? You know, I just, to me, it's like a return home. I, I was a blogger going way back to when I was a college student. You know, when, it, when I worked at, at Slate, a big part of what I did was blogging. And I kind of moved away from that and the world moved away from, from blogging as well. And I sort of didn't realize fully how much I missed it uh, until recently. And then when I got back into it, it just, it feels so natural to me to kind of groove in that particular kind of way. Um, I, I, I miss, you know, I miss the office, which like went away because of the pandemic and stuff before that. But I, I find it very freeing to like speak my mind just on behalf of myself and uh, say what I want. So a lot of people who aren't familiar with your pre-Vox work or maybe even haven't read the newsletter, blogging could mean a number of things. And it could mean indulgence. And it could mean that you're doing scattershot number of topics. And you're also 
being a little distracted. But I don't find that your newsletter does that. In fact, I find that your newsletter is more like we've assigned Matt Iglesias to write about this topic, which he's knowledgeable in, and we've pretty much let him have all the space he wants, especially because the we is Matt Iglesias. <laughs> yes, I, I am my own assignment editor, uh, which is which is always very nice. Um, you know, I am trying to deliberately take on things that I think are a little bit tough that are a little bit difficult. And I think that that's what's most vital and useful to do with journalism. I think a lot of digital outlets have kind of moved away from that, uh, from, from the idea of being contentious and mixing it up. But I, that's that's what I like to do. I mean, I, I try to do, you know, it's like one substantive piece per day, a sustained argument on a topic. Like, I try to be rigorous. It's not just like, goofy stuff about, you know, my lunch. Uh, we can leave that on Twitter. But, you know, I, I want to pursue idiosyncratic ideas that may be a little bit, you know, out of step with the temper of the times or the conventional wisdom. I mean, this is what we we used to be really known for at, at Slate uh, when I was there and, and before, uh, but that I think has gone a little bit out of style in media today. Yeah, I agree. And I wonder, there are a few arguments for this. One is that we used to have a lot more leeway to write about things that were maybe contrarian, maybe the victims or the people, maybe there was a punching down element that <laughs> we were freer to do or we weren't as conscious of punching down. You know, maybe it's just that once uh, an organization defines itself of this political silo, it gets punished by going outside that silo. But do you think that, what do you think has changed the most in that the media is less um, into putting out ideas that maybe even the majority of a publication would agree with. I think that the way social media works is very important. I think there's, I think like the podcasting space is really good in part because podcasting does not have that same element of social sharing and virality, right? Like you you grow a podcast audience by you have listeners and then you want those listeners to really like the podcast. So they say good things about it and you, you grow like that. And that's how all publications used to grow and used to operate. I think the tendency to sort of put things out there and then you know, people will mob you on Twitter, and it's it's very you know psychologically burdensome. Um, and the best way to get traffic is to sort of put something up on Facebook that people's first instinct is to react positively to. So they may hit the little like button based on just the headline without reading it. Uh, and it's antithetical to the kind of journalism. You know, there's a style. It's like you put a headline up, and the headline sounds wrong, and that's supposed to make it interesting. So people are like, wait, really? And then you click in, and then you hear an argument that convinces you of something you didn't think before. And that's just not how social media functions. And to the extent that publications are sort of hostage to these big digital platforms versus to loyal, valuable audiences, that hurts them. And it's why so much interesting work happens in the podcast space now. Uh, I love podcasting. I host a podcast. I like your podcast. There's a lot of great podcasts. But I'm a writer, first and foremost. And a nice thing about, you know, Substack is I'm supported by subscribers. So it's a different business model that's not as dependent on social media or Google algorithms. 
Yeah. And I also think, well, you tell me, your explanation was based on the business model, essentially, of of websites and Twitter. But I, I sense that there's a little bit of a grinding down if you are within the organization that wants to always agree with yourself, if you're the guy or girl who stands outside that organization. Right. So back when back when you wrote for Slate, which was before I came to Slate, Slate had this self-identity as we're all the people <laughs> who stand outside the organization and maybe say things that are ideologically inconsistent. But now I, I'm not I'm not making the argument that there is an actual greater market cost for ideological inconsistency. But I do feel as someone who is ideologically, often ideologically inconsistent with my organization, and really my bosses are great about that, but I do feel that there is, if not a pressure, then a weariness to always being that person who has to justify himself. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there has been more of a push toward kind of consensus internally to publications, which can be fine. But one thing that we've seen is at the same time that publications have sort of narrowed uh, their their span as individual publications is that I think a lot of different publications have become more similar to each other, right? So you could imagine a world in which there's like a hundred web publications and they're mm-hmm. each very dogmatic, but they occupy a hundred different spots on the ideological spectrum. And as writers change their mind or become less comfortable at one place or another, they just kind of switch, right? And that could be a very healthy uh, media ecosystem, even without anyone being like open-minded at all. But the sensibilities of different public, well, there's there's a universe of right-wing publications, right? Which is its own mm-hmm. thing and is very pathological in its own way. But more and more, I think you see a similar worldview reflected uh, when you used to have a kind of a, a broader, you know, but both pu- some publications like Slate that were very writer driven, and people were just kind of all over the map, but also the publications themselves occupied more distinct positions. Yeah. So if people are listening to this and saying, okay, this is a little hypothetical or esoteric, actually, I didn't want to start here. I wanted to start with the tangible because you wrote an article a couple of weeks before the election that I do think if Donald Trump had won, one of the reasons would have been surprising strength in, with the Latino vote. And I think it's possible that people would have gone and pointed to that article and say, this was it. This was the harbinger. It was all spelled out there. Now, because... Joe Biden did win. And because the Latino vote was surprising, yet not world defining, maybe this article doesn't have those properties. But I want to ask you about that. And I want to ask you about one of the observations you made while writing that. But could you just tell me a little bit about what the conclusions of this article was? Yeah. So, I mean, I was writing about Donald Trump's strength with with Latino voters, which, of course, now, you know, we, we've heard a lot about. But I think over the summer and fall was evident in the polling. I mean, some polling has been mistaken, but this existed there. And I think a lot of people on the left didn't quite want to see it uh, because progressives have been telling this story about Trump and the Trump years, starting with him appearing down the escalator, saying that Mexico is sending rapists and and murderers here. And it's that Trump represented a white supremacist politics in the United States. And when he won, that was a success for it. And if he lost, it was a failure of it. And the idea that there were a 
you know, a minority, but a non-trivial minority of people of color who looked at four years of Trump and said, yeah, we like this. This is good. Uh, we're, we're on board for this. It just didn't compute uh, with progressives. And there was intense reluctance to acknowledge that it was happening uh, right up until, you know, a week or so after the election, when the numbers just became undeniable. Right. Uh, reluctance to recognize it was happening until a week after it happened. So mm-hmm. here, I'll read a quote from you to you. And you wrote this reflecting back on that piece. While I was reporting on Joe Biden's somewhat surprising weakness with Hispanic voters, one Latino Democrat speculated to me that Black Lives Matter rhetoric might be turning off working class Hispanics. But he was so leery of being seen in any quarter as saying or doing anything critical of BLM that he wouldn't say anything about it on or off the record. Quote, I'm not touching that was another's response to my query about the tenable position. My question is, is this an example of how the composition of the media got in the way of telling a story that was maybe necessary for democracy, knowledge, or even activism within the Democratic Party? I mean, I think in part the composition of the media, but in part the it's bigger than the media, right? It was the internal dynamics of progressive politics were that you still haven't seen it, right? So there are Latino members of Congress. Um, there are people who specialize in Latino politics for the Democratic Party and survey type stuff. And many of them, I think, believed or still believe that, you know, Black Lives Matter from a white liberal to an audience of white liberals means a certain privilege checking, right? It's, it's I am affirming uh, that Black Lives Matter, right? I'm taking a step back myself. When you say that in the Rio Grande Valley, you're saying to a community that has traditionally been very loyal to the Democratic Party as part of an ethnic machine politics, it's like, well, do those lives not matter, right? In a more basic way, when you do polls on views of the police, Latino Democrats are much more positive sentiment toward law enforcement than black or white Democrats. So it's not hugely surprising that you would see movement based on that. But nobody quite wanted to raise the concern, you know, to say, hey, this is going to cost us with some people. Now, look, if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. If you lose votes, you lose votes. But, you know, there is a substantial strain of cultural conservatism among working class people of color, just as there is among working class white people. We saw Democrats lose support from non-college whites over the years in a number of ways. And now you're seeing some attenuation with non-college, non-white voters. And it's something that Democrats need to think critically about. But that means thinking outside the bubble of sort of College-educated activists talking to college-educated reporters, talking to college-educated staffers, talking to college-educated grant makers, right, can just form this closed loop of sort of woke intersectional politics that doesn't reflect how the people who are supposed to be the subjects of it actually think about things. And tomorrow, we will talk more with Matt about how political coverage has changed. For one thing, It's no longer about explaining the motives of a politician who stakes out a compromise position as much as it is excoriating the politician for doing so. That and more with Matt Iglesias tomorrow.
And now the spiel. For years, years on this program, I have said of the threat posed by Donald Trump's malfeasance that our delivery as a country will be competent people doing their jobs. Judges, the military, the intelligence services, state and federal prosecutors, even some in the media, and lots and lots of voters, competent people doing their job. And it came true. Now, along the way, making such a statement opened me up to criticism because you could always say, oh yeah, look at these nut jobs on the right. Look at these conspiracy theorists, one or two of whom got elected to Congress and several of whom in Congress won't denounce the conspiracy theorists. Look at these generals, these couple generals who are saying nothing or even agreeing with Trump or serving in his cabinet. Look at these senators not saying anything or not saying enough or not doing their jobs. Well, yes, if the premise was, Every civil servant or elected official in the government would have to stand up to Trump. Well, clearly that was never going to happen, and it didn't happen. If the idea was at no point along the way will we experience distress because competent people will save us, well, guess what? That wasn't the idea, so you can't hold the idea to that standard. And also it's true that not all the people who should have done their jobs did do their jobs. It shouldn't have gotten to the place where we were rescued by people doing their jobs. But on Election Day 2016, it seemed likely that our institutions would have to hold, and it became clear within a few weeks of Trump taking office that he would govern as he campaigned and as he lived, selfishly, incompetently, cruelly, and dissolutely. And so today we see the verdict has finally been rendered by the Electoral College, which is to say how we vote in America. And it means that the system was allowed to properly play out because our institutions were staffed by competent people doing their jobs. Now, yesterday, the Washington Post ran a story about judges and how judges have handled the Trump de-election campaign efforts. Here's how that story began. They're both elected and appointed, selected by Democrats and Republicans alike. Some have served for decades, while others took the bench only months ago. One's a former high school teacher, Another, the first Native American woman appointed to a federal judgeship. A third worked for years for a Republican governor who has been a vocal supporter of President Trump. Since the November election, they have all ruled in court against Trump or one of his allies seeking to challenge or overturn the presidential vote. In a remarkable show of near unity across the nation's judiciary, at least 86 judges rejected at least one post-election lawsuit filed by Trump or his supporters. I mean, that framing. It's almost cinematic in scope, or like a Ken Burns documentary. They came from the hills and the hollers, from the cities and the towns, and even places without a name. The children of farmers and merchants, and in some cases, wealthy men. They came to stand as one, one with a message to deliver. No, Rudy Giuliani will not be winning this lawsuit. Sorry, Sidney Powell saying it happened doesn't make it so. But you know, I don't know. Maybe it's necessary, maybe it's good to give the hero's treatment to these competent people doing their jobs. Maybe the way to raise the profile, raise the public appreciation of competent people doing their jobs, to not take them for granted, is to write a movie about them where they're the central character and they slay the dragon. Though I do think the reason that the Washington Post framed it so dramatically isn't to make a point that the mundane can be exceptional. The reason they did it was they really did fear that the center would not hold center defined as everything this side of the radical edge. 
And also, I do think that if we count judges with who weren't faced with hard judicial decisions, if we count them as heroes, perhaps we're sending the wrong message that only extraordinary heroism can save us. So it is kind of heroic, or at least good, or at least a saving grace that judges follow the law, which is what judges are supposed to do. In the way, I guess, that it's heroic that train conductors follow the track, or that, I don't know, we as drivers don't decide to steer into oncoming traffic all the time. It's a good thing. Saints preserve us if not, but maybe we're not all exactly flying high above the bar set for the exercise of professional duty. I got to thinking, so who were these competent people that did their jobs? Because, you know, some didn't, some were incompetent. Tim Wu, writing in the New York Times, was thinking of that too. And he points out, and I think this is right, that it wasn't the checks and balances of the legislative branch. No, Wu writes, quote, what really saved the republic from Mr. Trump was a different set of limits on the executive, an informal and unofficial set of institutional norms upheld by federal prosecutors, military officers, and state elected officials. Right, and I would add to that, the people, the Post is writing about judges. Basically, we're talking about the oath takers minus the elected. The Constitution does not call for every civil servant or federal employee to swear an oath to the Constitution, but with some jobs, it does. Judges, members of the House and Senate, political appointees, the military, and other federal employees shall take oaths of office that are required by Article 6 of the Constitution. They affirm to support the Constitution. It might seem like because there are so many oath breakers out there, namely the elected officials and the administration's appointees, people who owe their employment to Trump, that the oath was meaningless or that betraying the Constitution was the norm. But that's not true. As a rule, competent, serious people did not bend, did not come close to bending, and, and this is a tribute to our system, didn't have a particularly hard time not bending. The Republicans, who owed their once and future employment directly to Trump, they were different, not all of them, not Justin Amash, not Mitt Romney, in fact, we can name them, tells you something. So perhaps we can articulate a rule upon reflection. The rule is, except in the cases where the individuals were highly pressured to act in self-interest, the national interest was followed. There are even some very heartening cases where you could argue that state elected officials might have an easier time getting reelected or winning Republican primaries if they had blindly followed Trump, but instead they chose to stick by their oaths. Of course, it's true. We were stress tested. And I wouldn't want anyone to come away with the impression that oath adherence and competent people just did it easily, without thinking, without tension, without prompting, or without the attention paid to them, without urging them not to fold. It's also true that there will be a next Trump. This next Trump will be a more competent Trump, even if, I'll say especially if he or she literally isn't a Trump. And the system may be tested in ways that don't come down to the most ridiculous lawsuits since Lionel Hutz was arguing cases. But competent people did their jobs. And let's realize that it is, in fact, the quality of competence as opposed to the quality of heroism that is required. Ordinary competence, like a bridge that doesn't buckle or a dam that doesn't break. Stable and unremarkable, but also crucial and the only thing staving off disaster.
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mara Kelly says purple blobs with dumb guy accents cavorting with garish clowns painted yellow and red. She likes it. She thinks it's American. She won't apologize. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. How does he do it? It's easy. You substitute a series of symbols with their rough equivalent and semaphore. You ignore every third line. You go diagonally down to the left, and then you start on a new row. And when you're stuck, you just misspell Richard Nixon. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She thinks we're all going soft on Australia. Just a bunch of kangaroo cuddlers and koala coochie cooers. Disgusting, really. The gist. I do not for a second believe that Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer, but until they caught the real guy, I like Sam Brownback for BTK. Oom-poo-da-poo-do-poo, and thanks for listening.